Good morning again. It is good to be with you this morning. It is a privilege to open God's Word with you this morning. As Pastor Brian said, if you have a Bible, we're going to be considering this morning Daniel chapter 5, and I want to invite you to open with me to it. If you're new to the Bible or unfamiliar with its pages, Daniel is somewhere in the middle. Probably if you open up to the middle, chances are you'll hit Psalms or Ezekiel or Isaiah or Jeremiah. It's just after Ezekiel. It's a shorter little book. It's considered a major prophet. We'll talk about that more in a little bit. But I draw your attention to to Daniel chapter 5. We'll be considering a good chunk of the chapter this morning. As you're turning there, I want to set the stage with you for a little bit bit for the book of Daniel. I want you to imagine entering an elementary school in town, walking down the hallway, looking for one of the classrooms in particular. And as as you approach the room, you hear laughter and you hear mayhem. And you hear what sounds like things bouncing off the walls. And you hear music playing and you hear more laughter and maybe a little few tears every now and then. And when you get closer and closer and closer to the room, you you peek your head in the door when you finally get there. And what you see is mass hysteria. You see kids playing basketball with paper wads in the trash cans. You see books and rulers flying around the room. You see desks upturned. You see general chaos. And the thing that I want to ask you this morning is, What's going through your mind as you see this scene? I suspect the thing that's going through your minds, at least some of your minds, is where's the teacher? Because you're wondering who is in charge of this chaos that I'm seeing. This is not what I expect to see in this classroom. The question on your mind is who's in charge here? Because it doesn't appear that anyone is in charge. That question this morning for us is really the theme of the book of Daniel. The question is, who is in charge of the world in which we live? The way the book of Daniel unfolds is the first chapter tells us that Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had conquered Jerusalem, had, con- had entered Judea and entered Jerusalem, and had actually taken away, had entered the temple itself of God's people and taken away the vessels with which they worshipped. And along with that, he took Daniel and a number of other people away from the place with which was familiar and took them to Babylon to be raised in their kingdom. It was one of the ways that kings of that day ensured that they controlled the land that they had conquered. They took the nobility, the educated classes, and brought them away to their own kingdom to re-educate them. But the question of the book of Daniel over and over again is, who is in charge? In the first half, the first five or six chapters, the question is, is fairly specific. Because as we follow Daniel through life in Babylon, the question is, Who's in charge of the details of my life? Because Daniel is given instruction about what to eat, when to, ha- when to pray, to whom to pray, and there are consequences for disobedience. And then over and over again, the question is, who's in charge of all this? Because it's not fully clear. And then in the second half in, verses, in chapters 7 through 12, the scope backs up as Daniel receives these visions, these repeated visions over and over again of the Lord Jesus and of God himself. And the question not only becomes, who's in charge of the details of my life, but who is in charge of the details of history as the book unfolds? If you're familiar with it, you may may know what I mean. But that's the question for us even this morning today. When we look at the world around us, whether it's on a local level, in your job, in your home, in your school, in your neighborhood, or it's on the national or even the global level, you may be wondering who is in charge. And there's one clear answer as we see it unfold in Daniel chapter 5 and in the scriptures itself. Turn your attention now to Daniel 5. I'm going to read the first nine verses and then I'm going to skip ahead to verse 17. 
Would you please follow along with me as we hear now the word of God. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousands. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, and the concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple of the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wine and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his color changed and and his lords were perplexed. Just pause for a minute. At this point, the queen speaks up, possibly referring to the queen mother, um, meaning, meaning his, his, the, the, the previous king's wife, who still would have been in court. And she says, there is one who can help with this. His name is Daniel. And so they send for Daniel, who has a bit of a reputation at this point. And Daniel's brought in. And the same promises are made to him. We will give you clothing and status and wealth if you can interpret this. And then we pick up the story in verse 17. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself and and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of a beast and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of of heaven until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his throne, of his house, you have brought in before you. And you and your lords and your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which did not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored. Then from his presence the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck, and a pro- Proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. 
That very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God, and forever. Let's pray. Father in heaven, it is a weighty thing to consider your word any week, any time we open it. We ask, dependent upon you, that you would send out your light and your truth, that they would lead us, that they would guide us, that they would take us to your holy place, that they would take us to see you through your word this morning. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would change us, that you would meet us here and lead us. Give us understanding and apply these words deeply to our hearts and to our lives. In your name, Jesus, we pray all of this. Amen. When scandal hits, whether it's a politician or some other person in the public eye, most of us by this point in life, and especially given the last couple of years of a election, long election cycle, can put together what's going to happen next. There will be voices when, when something is revealed about the past of someone in the public eye or even something going on presently. You, you know how this is going to play out, don't you? On the one side, you have the people screaming for trial, screaming for prosecution, screaming for hearings to be had, to come to the truth, that all of it might be revealed, that this person might be knocked down from their high and lofty place. You know what the other side is, how the other side is going to respond as well. Some will respond by saying, that was a long time ago. This person has definitely changed. It's not the same person who said those things or who did those things. In other situations, we'll hear something like this. This is a personal, private matter not intended for public consumption. Let's just forget about it. It doesn't matter. What this person does in the privacy of their own home or their own computer is their business and not ours. Is it really hurting anyone? This is a private matter. And so on and so forth. One side, the, the, on one side, the, the, the voices of condemnation are rising higher and higher and higher. And on the other side, the voices of justification are saying, it's okay. This isn't that really that big of a deal. Let's move on with our lives and focus on very important things. It happens all over the place. It's probably commonplace to, to, for us now, given the nature of social media and our news cycle. But we do that too, don't we, in our own lives. What's, what's my privacy is my privacy. It's not for you to know about. What I do in the privacy of my own home is for me. And on some level, certainly there's some truth to that. But we, are, we have to admit we're quick to justify ourselves. We're quick to explain away the things that we know that we do that we shouldn't do and pretend like it's not that big of a deal. The question for us this morning, given the way verse 30 reads, what happens at the end of this text, what was the big deal about what Belshazzar did? What's wrong with what he did? The, the passage begins, he throws a party, which was his right to do. He's the king. I, think, I have a feeling that's kind of what kings do every now and then. And he throws this giant party, invites thousands of his leaders from his kingdom. And the way the room is probably set up is that he and his closest advisors and maybe a family member or two are up on a stage in the front of the room. And as they sit, they're, they're leading the feast by drinking wine and, and enjoying all the foods that are set before them. And as the passage continues in those first few verses, what we read is things get a little carried away, should we say. And he has an idea. He says, let's celebrate this victory of my father over this inconsequential little nation that claims to know the creator of the heavens and the earth. And so he calls forth and has them bring out the vessels of worship that those, that, that conquered people used, the, the very vessels from the temple. 
And they fill those very containers with wine. And they begin to drink even more in front of his, the crowd. It's a celebration, he acknowledges, of not his own victory, but of, of what his father has accomplished. As a way of, of acknowledging the past and, and probably saying, that's my dad, this is me too, so let's celebrate me while we're celebrating my dad. Well, what's the big deal? This is hardly scandalous. In, in very human terms, they have a right to do this, right? Because they're the conquerors. They were the victors. They were the ones who took over this other nation. They have a right to do with those things what they want to do. It's hardly scandalous, humanly speaking. We know very little about Belshazzar as a ruler. We, we, we don't get any sense that he was necessarily a tyrant or grossly unjust unjust or twisted humanly speaking so what's the big deal well we're given a hint that it's a big deal by what begins to happen in verse 5 as the story unfolds right because a hand shows up on the wall and begins to etch letters but they weren't sure what they were saying letters into the wall itself we're given the hints here that this is not an ordinary occurrence this is not what's expected to happen at the party in fact, what we, as we read, the, the king himself is physically affected by what he sees. We're told a couple of times his, his color changes, his knees knock together. He is scared to death as what, as what is before him. And in fact, when he calls the wise men of his own kingdom, that's who's listed there in verse 7, nobody has an answer for him. Nobody can explain what this, where this writing came from or what it means. And again, we're told his color changes. This man is scared to death because of who is in charge. So what do we do with this? Daniel is brought and gives an explanation. In large part, what I want to do this morning is reflect on these events, looking in particular at verse 23. So if you want to keep your finger there, that will be helpful for us. Notice how the, the assessment of what's happening is explained here. After giving an explanation of this king's own father and what he had experienced before God, how God had raised him up, with power and glory and might so that all listened to him and then humbled him from that place until he knew that God was the one who was in charge. Hear Daniel's words beginning in verse 23. Notice what he says. He says, You have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. As, we begin, as the passage unfolds, what we see happening, what, what Daniel himself is describing by the words of God himself is the sin of pride. You see, the king is, is living in self-absorbed opposition to God. You have lifted yourself up. You have declared yourself as an adversary with God. Even more, you have declared yourself to be a victor over the God whom we worship. The statement of the king is, look, we won. We're in the right. We have a right to do this. But where he's called to account is describing his, his sin of pride. He has lifted himself up against the Lord of heaven, against the God of the universe, the one who made all things. This is how we see the Bible defining our sin. You see, what we're going to see as we continue on is we want to limit sin to acts. We want to look at this party and say, well, he threw a party. Flag, that's wrong. He's got concubines. Flag, that's wrong. That's on the list of things we shouldn't do, Right? There's alcohol there. We want to put that on the list of things we shouldn't do, but none of those things are named at this point. The alcohol probably didn't help the situation. Let's be honest about that. 
But the reality is where Daniel goes is something far deeper. And this statement is, you have, you have set yourself up against God and you cannot stand there. Notice as he continues in the second part, in the next part of this verse, um, he says, the vessels of his house you have, have been brought in before you and you and your lords and your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And then listen to this next sentence. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze and iron and wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know. In his pride, in his arrogance, in his setting himself up against God as victor, he's also chosen to worship everything but the Lord of heaven. What's listed there are material things that people like because they can manipulate them. They can melt them and reform them and recast them and reshape them and carve them. And they can be conveniently made to fit someplace inside of a home or in a pocket or in a bag or even big, made big enough for all the people to see. The point is, he's worshiping, he's leading the people in worshiping what they presume to be able to control. They're devoted to some aspect of the created world while ignoring the Creator Himself. These gods do not see, they do not hear, they do not know. He's choosing to worship something that is completely empty. And yet that's where he has set his confidence. You see, our sin is not limited to doing the wrong things, though that is absolutely part of our problem. But it is really bound up in how we see God Himself. Sin runs far deeper than individual actions or failings. And it's at that place that Belshazzar is called to account in our text. A few years, well, actually, within my first few years of marriage, my wife and I lived in St. Louis in a smaller home. One Sunday morning, we woke up and I went downstairs getting ready for church and realized that the carpet in our basement was wet. And I thought, oh, this isn't good. And it had rained for most of the night. And so I began to pull back the carpet and, and began by drying up what was in the basement, the water on the floor. And then I realized, I looked out the back door, which was below ground level, and I realized that water kept coming in. And so, of course, great instinct of a new, new, new homeowner for me was, I kept wiping up the water and realized it keeps coming in. And so I opened up the back door and water flooded in because there was a grate at the base of the stairs right outside that door where the, where, that had been stopped up with leaves. And that kept the water flowing into our door rather freely. And so I got outside and I pulled the leaves off of the grate and that helped some. But the water kept coming in and kept coming in. It wasn't until we had made arrangements for responsibilities at church to be taken care of that morning that we realized that the deeper problem was underground in the flower beds in our backyard. Because as the water fell on the grass, what we realized was there was plastic lining all the beds in the backyard. We didn't put them there. They were put there, of course, to keep the weeds away. But what it did was it sent all of the water that was falling down that throughout the night towards the back door of our home and into our home. Wiping up the water from the inside would have only gotten us so far. In fact, it wasn't really working because it kept coming in. We had to realize that we had to dig deeper to take care of the actual problem that, that, that was causing all of this water to be siphoned, to be sent towards our home. And that was deep underground and we had to pull all that up in the rain. And once we finally did that, it finally slowed down and stopped and we were able to clean up the problems inside. I want you to see, that's what we see is how sin is pictured here. Our temptation repeatedly is, is to live with basic assumptions about what is sinful and what is not. 
that we, have, we may have some sense of guilt on a regular basis about what we're doing wrong. And so we have this list of things to say, as long as I don't do X, Y, and Z, I'm not committing any sin. And while those things most likely are sin for us, the reality is, the way the Bible speaks of it is it runs much deeper. Because it has to do not only with what we do on any given day and how we treat people or don't treat people, but it's actually focused on how we see God himself and how we respond to him in setting ourselves against him as the one who, who would be victorious over us. Which may sound silly to us, right? It may sound silly. We're sitting in a church on a Sunday morning. We're here to worship. We've confessed our sins. We've sung to him. And yet I wonder for you, for me, where in our lives do we look around and are, live as if, we're, if, as if we're the ones in control? Where in our lives do we rest our confidence in our intellect, in our financial planning abilities, in our work ethic, in our strength, in our insight, in our wisdom, in who our parents are and who our kids are? And we look at all of those parts of our lives and think, I'm doing great. Things are awesome. Nothing bad can happen to me. And then when something does happen, what do we do and how do we respond? I wonder for many of us if we don't live our lives striving for control that we assume is every, we have every right to. I wonder if that pride and that arrogance will show itself forth in our lives. And if we can look at that and see that as sinfulness. Are we trusting in something or believing something will come through for us? We have to ask ourselves if that's where we find ourselves. Is it working? Is our GPA enough? Is our savings account enough? Are the, 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 re the reports that we receive at work, are they enough for us to hold on to and to cling to? You see, the reality of what the passage shows us as Daniel begins to speak in verse 23 is that God is the one who gets to define what sin is because he's the one who's in charge. It's not for us to figure out. It's his definition. Notice what happens as we continue through that verse. And I want to remind us that, that what happens here is that Daniel is sort of the token believer in the, in the room, okay? He's the token follower of Yahweh because nobody else could have an answer for this. And they, he has built a reputation by this point in the kingdom as someone who knows his God and who has wisdom and insight and might be able to help. Some of you know what it is to be the token Christian in your workplace and in your classroom and in your dorm. You know what it is to be the one who's probably joked about either to your face or behind your back on a regular basis because of what you believe and how you live. But you also know what it is to be the one who when somebody's really having a hard time, they, they might actually open up to you and talk to you and ask for prayer. You know what it is to be the one who gets the Christian church questions when they come up given the time of the year. Now, now what's Easter all about again? And, and what's Christmas really all about? And why is it celebrated here? And why do you do this stuff? Many of you know what that feels like. That's Daniel's position. But here, unlike you and I, when Daniel speaks, he's speaking as a prophet. He's speaking for God. It's been established in this letter, in this book already, that Daniel speaks because God is speaking through him. And so not only does God define sin for us, but God brings judgment of sin. It's what we see even in verses 18 through 23 as, as Daniel accounts for, for Belshazzar what had happened in the past. He's recounting what God has said, had said to his father and how that had unfolded. And if we get to verses 21 and 22, notice again what he says there in verse 21. He says, he was driven, speaking of Nebuchadnezzar, the father, he was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of a beast and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. 
He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven. This is utter humiliation for an all-powerful king. But then notice how the sentence continues. Until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And then in verse 22, these words of judgment, And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all of this. Daniel is speaking on behalf of God to say to the king, you have made the mistake that your father had made in assuming power and control and ability and wealth and glory for yourself. But then it goes on in in verses 24 through 28, we hear Daniel interpreting the writing like no one else could. And when these four words appear and he gives the meaning to say, King, what this is telling you is that your days are numbered, that you have been measured and found wanting. And even in fact to say there's another kingdom, the Medes and the Persians are waiting to come in and take over your kingdom. Your days indeed are numbered. But then jump down to verse 30. Not only does God speak through Daniel, but God acts. Because that very night we read Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. The way this unfolds in Scripture when this happens... What we're supposed to understand is that God himself took his life. That out of his pride and out of his arrogance, God said, here's the line, you've crossed it, no more. You're done. God speaks and God acts. And just in case you're thinking this morning, I'm glad God doesn't do that in the New Testament, I invite you on your own time to consider Acts chapter 5 and Acts chapter 12, where God does this very thing. To people who stand in pride and arrogance against his knowledge of them and his control of his world. Those who accept glory for themselves and honor for themselves. God says no. God speaks and God acts. This is the case. Where do you and I stand? The New Testament is clear. Paul says in Romans chapter 3 that by the works of the law no human being will be justified. That there is nothing that you and I can do to manipulate God to like us more. There's nothing that we can accomplish to make us happy with Him. He says later in that same chapter, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is the judgment of God against humanity. Peter writes in 1 Peter that Christ also suffered all once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. You and I are not the righteous. We are in the category of the unrighteous who needed Jesus to die for us. John says in 1 John, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Jesus himself says in John 3, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. God defines what sin is by who he is and how we respond to him. And God judges sin at the very same time. But notice, there's one other part to this verse that that this is what caught my attention, attention a number of years ago and got me fascinated with this passage. It's how verse 23 ends. Daniel says this to Belshazzar, but the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. Not only does God define sin and God judge sin, but Daniel's words to the king are that God sustains you, Belshazzar, even in your sinful rejection of him. That God is the one who gives us life and breath and everything else. He speaks of, of his being. He speaks of his breath who, in whose hand is your breath. As if to say to the king, even as you sang your drunken songs of victory against the God of Israel, that God of Israel was the one who was giving you the ability to sing those songs. 
He was making the biology of your body that I couldn't begin to explain right now. Make it all of that work so that in your rebellion, He was the one who was giving you life. In His hands are all of your ways. Every morning when you wake up and wear whatever you do, all of it is in His hands. Beloved, this is the grace of God. Even as the king reveled in victory that wasn't his, it was God himself who allowed him to sing and dance. It was God himself who upheld the pillars of that room so that it didn't fall and crush the people. It was God himself that kept the armies at bay, the storms at bay. It was God himself who controls all things. In a strange way, this is a message of grace, even for this pagan king. Because the message is, God is good and God is patient. Beloved, for you and me, I want to give you hope this morning, but I don't want to give you false hope. I want you to know that as long as we have breath in our lungs, Jesus calls us to repentance. You may be angry at God. You may have nothing but bitterness and foul language towards him. He's he's strong enough to take that. But you also have to know that your rejection of God is because he allows you to reject him. That your angerness, your tears come because he sustains you. And as long as you have breath in your lungs, the call is to repent. The call is to run to the one whom you are rejecting, whom you are angry at, who you are bitter at, who you've been hurt by. The call is to run to Him. And as long as you have breath, that call stands. Beloved, as long as you and I struggle with sins in our lives, it's the Lord that sustains us. It's the Lord that upholds us. It's the Lord that allows us to live each new day that He gives us. Parents, as you see your kids struggle in ways that frustrate you and scare you, you have to know that the Lord is the one sustaining the lives of your kids. It's not you. That the Lord himself is upholding their lives, every breath, who keeps them alive as long as he would. I also want to say this, and I don't mean to oversimplify the struggle that sin is for for us at any time. But I wonder for us if part of the application of this text is for us to learn to let our breath remind us of God's faithfulness. That as you feel yourself overpowered with the temptation to look where you shouldn't look, to act how you shouldn't act, to say what you shouldn't say, I wonder if part of the grace of this is to live in such a way that we at least try to train ourselves to pause and to take a breath. It's not the full answer to sin in no way, shape, or form. But I wonder if simply learning to pause and take a breath to remember that our breath is in God's hands, that our life is in God's hands, that he is the one who sustains us. I wonder if that's not helpful for us. I said initially the basic question of Daniel 5 is what's wrong with what Belshazzar did? But the bigger question is who's in charge? As the passage ends, it's made clear that God himself is in charge of you and of me, of kings, of presidents, of senators, of congressmen, of armies, of dictators, of famine, of pestilence, of all things that God himself is the one who's in charge. Eugene Peterson made this comment. He said that the the truth of the gospel is that God in Christ rules and saves. 
The reality of the human condition is that we are determined to rule and save and that we make a thorough mess of it every time that we do. We want to rule ourselves and we want to save ourselves. We want to rule others and to save others. That's the message that Jesus came to make known so clearly. We want to rule and and we want to save. The message of the Gospel and the hope of the Gospel is that only God, through Jesus, both rules and saves. Beloved, it's the testimony of Scripture over and over and over again. In Exodus 34, when God speaks to Moses, and as Moses asks to see God, God says, you can't see me, but I'll tell you what my name is. And he says this, he says, it says the Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. God tells Moses, and he tells you and me throughout Scripture, this, these verses are repeated over and over again, to say to God's people, God is slow to anger, he is merciful and he is gracious, and he judges sin at the same time. In Romans 2, Paul says this to the Romans, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God is meant to lead you to repentance? This is the message of the Gospel. That, the, that God Himself is merciful and gracious and kind. And His mercy and His grace is not intended to leave us where we are, but to lead us to repentance. The message here, finally, is this. The message is not, your sin is worse than you think it is, so get to work because you have to fix it. The message is not, keep trying harder and maybe one day you'll get to the really spiritual place. If we know our hearts enough, if we see our hearts enough through the Scripture, we know that we stand judged and condemned. The message is not only that God has spoken in judgment, but that God has acted in judgment. You see, the message is that God put forward His own Son, Paul tells us in Romans 3, as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. That fancy word propitiation means it's a sacrifice that God made of His Son for all who would receive Him. And the hope of the Gospel is that God's judgment has been poured out not on us, but on His Son. And that all who believe in Him should have eternal life. All who believe in Him should know that justice has been accomplished. Sins are forgiven and all who trust in Him are declared righteous. Beloved, that's the Gospel. It's that judgment has indeed happened. God has made it right because God had to judge sin because it is the, the opposition against Him. It is worshiping everything but Him. We can't fix that ourselves. We are prone to that. That is our life. And yet by the grace of God, He poured out His judgment not on His people, but on His Son so that all who trust in Him might have life. Beloved, God defines what sin is. God judges that sin. And God sustains us in the midst of that sin. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Father, we pray that the reality of who we are as sinful, as Pastor Brian has told us from Ephesians chapter 2, as dead people when left to ourselves, as those following the prince of the power of the air, as those walking in darkness, Father, I pray that you would continue to help us to embrace 
what, the, what that says about us and our need for you. But at the very same time, we pray, oh, we pray, Father, that you would help us to see your Son more clearly, that, we'd help us, that you would help us to see you more clearly, that the salvation that is, that is set before us, we would embrace wholeheartedly, receiving it because it is given so freely. May we live in such freedom. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Let's sing of such hope and such glory and such beauty together as we sing, stand and sing together, my worth is not in what I own.